0: hello and welcome to the gestalt it rundown today is wednesday april the 27th and i hope you have a snack handy because it is national gummy bear day and i am your sugary sweet host mr tom hollingsworth back from a week out in the woods but i am joined by my um, gummy worm co-host mr stephen foskett stephen welcome to the show thank you very much and i do like a good gummy bear i have to admit Yes, they're they are uh, they're perfect because they are small and shaped like um, you know, nature's Cuisinart's. So um, I hope you will uh, enjoy a snack as we cover some of the news stories that have been popping up this week. Uh, it's been an interesting week in the news, and we've got some enterprise tech news that you're definitely not going to want to miss out on. Um, we're going to start off with a little bit of stability in these crazy times, and you can't get more stable than a long-term support release. And now Ubuntu has you covered with the latest version of their rock-solid distribution. Um, in this release, the Canonical team is really touting the fact that the uh, adoption rate of Ubuntu in the public cloud has been very high and that they are the only Linux distribution that supports Azure Confidential VMs. Now, Stephen, a lot of people do use Ubuntu and a lot of the product or projects that uh, like to have some stable support releases are fans of these LTS uh versions. But should we get excited about the Honda Civic of Linux distros?
1: Hey, man, it may be the Honda Civic of Linux distros, but it's the one that I use for everything. And the reason is because these LTS releases are awesome. Essentially, Canonical is saying, here's a a Linux distribution that works. And not only that, it's going to work for a long, long time. We're going to support this for a long time, and it's going to work. And you know what? It does... And that's why I love it. And this one has some uh, you know, more to love about it, frankly. It has uh, uh, supports ARM for one thing, uh, which means that you can now use Ubuntu 2204 on uh, Raspberry Pi. Um, it supports Docker uh, for another thing, which means that you can have a nice long-term stable Docker distribution that you can use uh, with various things. Uh, it's got a lot of other stuff in there, Uh, you know, Kafka and Postgres and MySQL and all this kind of stuff, real-time kernel uh, compliance and all this stuff. But really what you should be thinking about is if I'm going to use Linux, if I'm going to support Linux in an application and if I'm going to rely on it, I need to be relying on something that's going to be supportable, that's going to last for a long time, that I'm not going to have to mess with. And most importantly, something I can trust to, uh, you know, I can click update, and it will update, and it's still going to run, and it's not going to break my system. And that's what Ubuntu LTS is all about. And frankly, it's great. So should you be excited about it? No. And that's the point. You should absolutely not be excited about your Linux distribution. And that's what we've got. So welcome to the world, 2204 uh, LTS of Ubuntu. Google has finally submitted the Istio project to the Cloud Native Computing Foundation for consideration. Uh, Google had initially submitted the project to the Open Usage Commons group, even though Kubernetes and Envoy are part of CNCF. This had created some issues in the community, but Google appears to have listened and asked OUC to donate the trademarks to the Linux Foundation to manage the project. The community has been supportive of the move overall, and the vote on acceptance of the project will come after consideration of the application and due diligence. Tom, uh, why did wait, Google wait so long on Istio?
0: That depends on who you ask. If you ask Google, it was the right time to do this. If you ask everybody else, it's because they got badgered into doing it. Um, yeah, and here's the weird thing. So the OUC is still going to be the license model that they're going to use going forward. They're just sending all the trademarks and everything over to the Linux Foundation so that it kind of looks like it's there. Um and it's being managed by CNCF. And and effectively, you know, th- this is a problem we face a lot in open source, is that there are a bunch of different licensing models out there. And someone picks the licensing model that they feel is the best for the project that they want to use. And invariably, whatever choice they make, it's wrong. Because wherever you are, someone is going to come out and say, well, you should have picked the other model because it includes all of these things. Or if you're not really learned it in the ways of open source, you should have just picked GPL because GPL is the best, even though there's a lot of things in GPL that may cause a commercial project to not want to do things or projects that are heavily leveraged by commercial entities. And so that's kind of where Google found itself with Istio, because with you know being like the number one service mesh, they, they wanted to make sure that they got it right. And the biggest problem was that IBM was wholly unsupportive of this move, and IBM has, has contributed a lot of code to Istio, and it comes down to the governance. They, they believe that OUC does not allow for the same kind of open governance as CNCF. Um, the scuttlebutt, if you read uh, sources like the News stack, is that the people who were hesitant to send it to CNCF no longer work at Google, which probably is lending credence to Google's press release where they say it's the right time to do this. The right time, of course, is when all opposition is gone, and uh, we can do this anyway. So, I'm happy that Google has finally decided to do this to send Istio to sit with its its friends, you know, Envoy and Kubernetes. Um, I'm just uh, wondering what took them so long, and and truthfully, we we may never know. Um, Steven, I hope uh, I hope you're in the mood to do some shopping. Uh, because Toshiba is doing it as well. Uh, The company is reportedly looking to ease some pressures from a couple of their investors regarding the future of the business. Now, you may recall that uh, three years ago, they uh, created a spinoff, a kind of a partnership with Western Digital on some of their storage assets that became known as Kyosha. Well, that wasn't enough to relieve the pressure because two of their biggest investors, Efissimo and 3D Investment Partners, are telling Toshiba that something's got to change. And how bad is it? Well, Kyosha was sold to Bain Capital to kind of manage it. And Fissimo basically told Bain Capital, if you make a takeover bid for the company, we'll sell you all of our stock. That's how bad it's getting. Now, Toshiba's been through three CEOs in the last year. They've mo- multiple times they have offered to split the company first into three parts and then into two. But both of those um, offers have basically fallen apart without any movement being made. And I think that the investors are starting to get a little cagey about wanting their money back. Um, Stephen, what do you think Toshiba should do from here? What's well, a tough situation? Because this is a, a diversified company,
1: to put a, a, a mild point on it. Toshiba is basically the Japanese General Electric in that they are involved in all sorts of different things, including, yes, financial services, financial services semiconductors, as you mentioned, flash memory with Kyosha, which they still have a, a, a stake in, um, hard disk drives, semiconductor manufacturing, but they also make uh, nuclear power plants, uh, locomotive <laughs> engines, all sorts of things. I mean, it's, it's a huge and diversified company. And Toshiba is really just trying to figure out like, what it's going to do for a living. Heck, I have a Toshiba television at home. So essentially, uh, what we're seeing here are the, the last throes of that sort of 80s and 90s um, mega conglomerateness, and kind of a company like Toshiba really has to figure out how it's going to enter the new world. Now, from a perspective of enterprise IT folks, it's important to understand that Toshiba is still an important part of the enterprise IT crowd, especially in terms of semiconductor and hard drive manufacturing. It's basically the hard drive manufacturer that's not called Western Digital or Seagate. Now, if Toshiba gets out of this market, well, guess what? Uh, One of those two are probably going to pick up the asset, and it will probably make one of those two the world's leading hard disk drive manufacturer for good and forever. And you may think, well, hard disk drives, that's old news. Oh, boy oh boy, they still sell tons of these things and they're still really important and the development, the technology development that's going into it is still really important. So essentially we've got a situation where a critical infrastructure supplier is in need of a future path. Uh, it's just, just it doesn't make any sense right now and they're trying to find their way forward. I do suspect that this thing is gonna be scooped up uh, and in part by various private equity partners who are going to carve it up Uh, maybe logically, maybe illogically into um, what was proposed previously, which was basically three components. So you have a vendor that does things like printers and barcodes and point of sale stuff. You'll have another one that will do basically semiconductors and electronics devices. And then you'll have a third one that's sort of infrastructure, nuclear power plants and locomotives and things like that. And each of those, I think, might be more valuable as not Toshiba than as Toshiba and frankly, I think that's what's going to happen here. Tom, we covered the MailChimp breach a few weeks ago on the rundown, but it's back in the news again. A proposed class action lawsuit has been filed by the cryptocurrency investors against Intuit and Rocket Science Group, the owner and operator of MailChimp. The, suite, uh, or the suit alleges that uh, poor security practices at Intuit allowed hackers to send phishing emails and empty the Tracer cryptocurrency wallets of uh, crypto investors. Tom, uh, do you think
0: this lawsuit will succeed? Um, insert my "nothing of value is lost here" joke. Um, here's the deal: Intuit really did get caught uh, with the the cookie jar open. Essentially, um, they they screwed up. Like like this was a breach that allowed the attackers to get the whole Trezor mailing list and send out, you know, hey, you need to install this this update. And they were very crafty because they sent them off to a website that looked legit, unless you are familiar with the diacritical mark known as the Cedilla, which is that little squiggly thing underneath the E in Trezor, which of course then made it a not a legitimate site. And they were able to basically loot these people's crypto wallets because they installed software they shouldn't. So yeah, hey, it's it's phishing, it's social engineering. We, we've seen this since, I don't know, the seminal 1995 work, Hackers, and even before that with Kevin Mitnick. Uh, No, the problem ultimately is, is that it was Intuit's mismanagement and and Rocket Labs group inability to operate MailChimp effectively that caused this to happen. So do I think that there's merit to this lawsuit? Yeah. Yeah. Intuit's going to settle this really quickly because they don't want this to kind of blow up. Um, Do I think ultimately that MailChimp is going to get attacked in the future like this? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, they're just going to get more creative about it. And so, what MailChimp really needs to do is they need to kind of institute some sort of an internal firewalling setup where you, even if a, a user or one of their administrators gets, um, oh, I don't know, breached, that their ability to use those internal tools to kind of basically pull the user databases in is limited. Um, because, you know, in a situation like this, there's not really a whole lot more you can do. And, and I'm sorry that you lost your treasure coins or whatever they're being called. Um, you know, maybe if you knew what the coins look like, you could identify them in a lineup or, or or halt trading of their serial numbers. Oh, wait, I forgot. You can only do that with real money. So we'll see what that uh, what happens there, um, Stephen. Uh, we talk about NVIDIA and Intel a lot on the show, and it uh, looks like they're both very interested in the future of photonics because this week they announced that they're going to be investing in the Series C funding round uh, from IR Labs. Now, the company is focused on silicon photonics, which, if you're not familiar with, it is connecting the chips and components on the chips with light pulses instead of electrical signals. And this is a big deal because a chip that uses silicon photonics to do this is capable of much higher transmission speeds and significantly reduce power consumptions, which is something that we're starting to see as a limit for Moore's Law as the amount of heat on a chip rises because of electricity. Intel has been doing a lot of research in silicon photonics for a number of years, and this is not the first time that they've invested in IR Labs. However, it is the first time that NVIDIA has invested in the company, and given some of the moves that they've made recently with the pickup of Mellanox and even their um, interest in ARM Uh, You think that maybe they're starting to branch out from doing GPUs and possibly pick up some new CPU technologies. Now, Stephen, this is a startup company because, I mean, they're on their Series C, but could they succeed in bringing silicon photonics into the light where companies like Intel have struggled? Well, I think it's important to recognize that Intel has been working on silicon photonics
1: for a long time, as have others, including Hewlett Packard Enterprise, which is another one of the investors in IR Labs. So this is interesting that they would be investing in what may be seen as a competitive technology. But I think that that's not what quite what's going on here. I think that essentially this is a classic case of a new emerging technology. There's a lot of really interesting people doing some really interesting basic work on the technology. And anyone that wants to be part of that in the future has to be part of everything that they can get into in order to protect themselves from intellectual property lawsuits in the future. And I think that's really what this is all about. I think Intel is hedging their bets in case Iyer Labs comes up with something that is indispensable, a patent or an invention that just, you know, makes silicon photonics work and can't, you know, work without, and making sure that they'll be part of that game. I think the real news here is the fact that NVIDIA is involved. Now, NVIDIA has not been involved in silicon photonics very much in the past. Now, of course, they, they do get involved with optical networking thanks to Mellanox, but, but not silicon photonics specifically. Also, it's interesting to see some of the other names in here, including uh, defense contractors. <laughs> um, I guess they're interested in this stuff too. But uh, yeah, my take on this is that essentially uh, this is obviously the future of in-device interconnects, this is something that Intel and NVIDIA and others really need to be part of, and they're willing to put some money on the table to make sure that whatever comes out and whatever ends up working is something that's the that that they're sitting at the table with. So, is this uh, a show that silicon photonics is finally here? I mean, remember Thunderbolt was originally called Light Peak because it used well, silicon photonics, but it didn't. Um, no, uh, that doesn't mean that this is finally here. What it means is that we're doing fundamental research. We're starting to build the technology, starting to make it work. And soon it's going to come. And uh, when it does, Intel, NVIDIA, and HPE are going to be right there.
0: All right. Well, Stephen, we had one story that we wanted to take a little bit of a closer look at. Um, it involves some, uh, some interesting things that we've learned about a social media company recently. Uh, It comes courtesy of Vice because they got their hands on a leaked memo from Facebook that sheds some light on some troubling privacy issues that the platform has. Per the memo, Facebook is worried about the growing number of user privacy regulations around the world because the company cannot say where the user data that they collect actually goes or what companies are doing with it once they collect it. Um, Facebook admits that one of the problems that they're facing is that they built systems with open borders. And that it is very hard to regulate those. The analogy that they used is it's like pouring ink into a lake and then trying to get all that ink back into the bottle. Um, I believe you had an analogy about making a strawberry fruit smoothie and then trying to put the strawberries back together. It's very similar to that as well. Now, the memo, ironically enough, comes from the Facebook ad and privacy or ad and business product privacy group the people who are in charge of privacy for the ad regulation folks, because they say they don't have any kind of adequate controls and they cannot confidently say that a specific piece of user data will not be used for a specific purpose. You know, the things that regulations like GDPR and CCPA are specifically designed to address. Hmm. Stephen, I don't know about you, but this sounds like a nightmare scenario for privacy advocates. And it looks like Facebook is about to face some very difficult questions.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and 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 Facebook, rightly so. I'm sorry, but um, you know their internal groups are saying what I think a lot of people suspect, which is we don't have a handle on this. And you know I don't know the ins and outs of what's going on inside Meta or Facebook, but I'm pretty sure that this is accurate. Um, that essentially they've created a data ocean, not just a data lake, and all of their data lakes and data rivers and data streams are, are filling up this data ocean and they can't control that. Uh, Frankly, the thing that's most refreshing about this story is just how honest it sounds. Uh, Yeah, we don't have a handle on this. We're collecting all this information. We can't control it. The example given in the story is uh, religious affiliation. Essentially, if you put in your religious affiliation into a Facebook property, uh, whether it's Facebook.com or some other Facebook property, because remember, they own a lot of them, uh, that information absolutely can get out into the data ocean and eventually find its way into advertising. Um, that's not legal in, the, in Europe, and it's probably not legal in California, and it's probably not legal in a bunch of other countries as well. And yet, uh, they really just can't control it. And uh, frankly, it's because of the system architecture that they've built. It's because uh, they traditionally haven't had or wanted controls on this, and in my opinion, it's because companies like Facebook are just collecting so much data that they can't control what data they have and how it's used. Simply because they're constantly collecting data. So yeah, you entered a religious affiliation on Facebook.com, but um, you know you click on a um, Torah-related advertisement on some other site that goes through some Facebook uh, ad network. Well, then you've just submitted your religious affiliation. Uh, to some other part of Facebook, or if you post a happy you know, Ramadan message in a Facebook-owned property, well, then you've just submitted another religious affiliation data point. And things like that are very, very, very hard to control because they're not supposed to control them. Because the whole point, the whole point of the algorithm is that it wants all this information. Now, Facebook was supposed to be developing a basic ads service that would protect you from experiencing the impact of this sort of thing, and they're late. They're very late. They're over two years late with the uh, promised release of that thing, and frankly, it is pretty symbolic of of what's going on because, I mean, essentially what they're promising to do and what they're driven to do by regulations like GDPR is basically a leopard changing its spots. Facebook's not going to change its spots. Facebook is going to collect data, and it's going to use that data in ways that are odious and perhaps illegal. And that's just what Facebook does. And so how can they fix it? They can't fix it. I guess they can change their business model. I don't know, Tom, can you think of any way that they can fix this?
0: Yeah, they should have put the controls in place when they built the platform. Um, I, I I quote the great philosopher of our time, Ian Malcolm. You spent so much time wondering if you could, you, you forgot to ask whether or not you should. And that's the problem, is that when you're a startup and you have all the, all the gas in the world. You don't worry about the brakes. You want to go as fast as possible. You want to collect all the data that you can. And now you're stuck because you are not handling user data. You are handling toxic nuclear waste because every time that it sits around in your systems and you don't know where it's going and you don't know what it's doing, it's going to kill you. And I'm, I, I feel like the metaphor may be stretched a little bit, but it's not very far off. I mean, I wrote about this a number of years ago on my blog. The problem with all of the data collection that we're doing right now has nothing to do with the data collection. It has everything to do with the data storage. What's happening is, is these companies are trying to grab as much data as they can. And the thought process is, we'll make good use out of it at some point. It's got to be good for something somewhere. Let's just hold on to it until we can figure out what to do with it. But it's weapons-grade plutonium. Just having it causes problems because now you're a target. And that's one of the things that the Facebook people are starting to see, is that just having the data, even if it doesn't go anywhere, is a huge liability issue. And now they're talking about the fact that once it's in there, they don't know where it goes and they don't know how to restrict it from going anywhere? Oh boy, that's not pouring ink into an ocean, that's pouring cyanide into an ocean. Because what's going to end up happening is is it's going to poison every relationship that businesses have with Facebook. Because if you think it's going to stop with Facebook, it's not. GDPR, CCPA, whatever the next version of that is, they're not going to go after Facebook. They're going to go after your business. Oh, you collected that data? Can you show me the privacy controls that you have in place to guarantee that nothing's going to happen to it? Oh, you can't? Well, here's a small or very not small fine that you're going to have to pay. Facebook's not going to change their business model. They are a leopard that eats faces, not a leopard that changes spots. And they are absolutely going to pass all the liability along to you because they collected the data, but you're the one that requested it. And they're going to try to pass the buck because they don't want to have to pay because they can't, because they can't fix this. The toothpaste is out of the tube. The genie's out of the bottle. The ink is out of the bottle. The only way to fix this is to blow the platform up and start over again with breaks, in place to prevent this from happening. If you think about all the times that we tell enterprise companies, don't bolt security on as an afterthought, well, Facebook did, and now they're paying the price for it, and eventually so will you. All right, I'm going to get off of my soapbox here. Um, I think it's probably time that we look for something a little bit more, uh, I don't know, uplifting, like some of the things that we have coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, The most exciting thing for me, obviously, is the fact that we have another great Tech Field Day event next week, and it's going to be focused on networking. So, Networking Field Day is going to be May 4th through the 6th. You can find out more information if you head over to techfieldday.com right now, including a lineup of who's presenting and the delegates that will be in the room. Stephen, what comes out right around that time?
1: Yeah, same time is uh, Dell Technologies World, uh, which is a live and virtual event uh, on May 2nd to 5th. And then uh, May 18th and 19th, I'm very excited uh, for AI Field Day, which is going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to bring together some of the AI-focused delegates in our Tech Field Day community, and uh, we're going to learn a little bit about the infrastructure that's enabling AI applications in the enterprise.
0: And right after that, uh, June 12th through the 16th, is going to be Cisco Live US. It's going to be a big get-together in the city of Las Vegas, Nevada. It'll be the first time we've had Cisco Live and well, two years. But more importantly, Tech Field Day will be there as well. We'll be having Tech Field Day extra presentations. You'll be hearing from companies like Cisco and Open Gear, And also, you can head over to the website, techfieldday.com, learn a little bit more about that. And uh, you know if you're interested in being a delegate, um, we are uh, looking for folks to take part in that. So make sure you fill out the delegate uh, nomination form at techfieldday.com. Uh, you can get on our radar, and uh, maybe you can find yourself in the room with some of our great folks. Uh, That will just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Thank you very much for tuning in. You can find the latest episode on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Gestalt IT video or on our website at gestaltit.com. We'll be back every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time with the latest news in the enterprise tech world. Uh, We're always looking for great stories that we want to cover. And if you have one that you want to cover as well, make sure you tweet at Gestalt IT and use the hashtag Rundown. And uh, we'll see that and maybe add your story to the list and you can get some perspectives from Stephen and I on on what's going on. Um, I want to thank you all for tuning in and we will see you next week. Have a great day and see you soon.